Good morning, Bridgeway. Good to see you. Uh, I brought out a friend of mine, and that would be Pastor Brian Kiley, and we're going to share. Yeah, look, you, yeah, let's all clap for Brian Kiley. Everybody clap for me. That, right. that is this awesome. Is, there's nothing weird about this. Thank Woo, you. Brian Kiley, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. All right. <laughs> that, was, that was slightly awkward. Uh, but that's all right. That's all right. Uh, I'll tell you what. Um, we have a, a quick announcement that we wanted to share with you that we were really, really excited about. We're about to launch something that is different from anything else that we've ever done at Bridgeway. And it is a 10-week discipleship experience that we as a leadership want everyone in the church ultimately to go through. But it is eventually going to be designed primarily for everyone wanting to find out more about getting connected to Bridgeway, more connected to Christ. And so to tell you a little bit more about that, I thought it would be better to have the primary leader of that, Pastor Brian Kiley, share those details. Woo! Yes! All right. Well, appreciate the enthusiasm. Uh, and so, like I said, we are we're absolutely thrilled to be launching the path starting this fall. For a long time, we as a leadership team have really desired to have one key class or experience that we can send everybody to, to kind of learn Bridgeway basics, to learn sort of the, the important key uh, fundamentals of theology, to have some experiences that will help them grow. Because the fact of the matter is, you've been here for a long time, you know that we have a lot of great ministries that happen here, but it can be challenging to know, okay, where do I start? And we've wanted to have kind of a, a, a clear starting place for a long time, and, and that's launching September 13th, and it's the path. So the, the path, uh, Lance and I were talking yesterday, it's a little bit difficult to describe in just a sentence or two because it accomplishes a lot of things. On the one hand, it's kind of, it's a connecting class. You'll, you'll learn more about Bridgeway's DNA, our core values, our mission statement, things like that, which even if you've been around for a long time, uh, the heart of who we are has not changed, but the way we articulate that really has. So, so I think it's even important for those of you that have been here for a long time to, to get locked in on our new core values, our new mission statement, uh, and all of that stuff. So, so it's a connecting experience. Uh, it's a, a spiritual growth experience. We're, we're going to wrestle together through uh, significant theological questions. Who is God? How do I communicate? with him? What is my purpose? And all of that stuff. And, and I had someone come up to me in the lobby after the six o'clock service yesterday and, and they asked, they're like, okay, Brian, uh, just level with me here. Is this like going to be like really like low level basic stuff? <laughs> and, and I said, no, it's not. I said, the class is designed so that all of the theological concepts we're going to talk about, they're accessible to anybody. So if it makes sense to anybody, even if you're new to this or you're asking questions or wherever you are. But we're going to explore them at great depth. So it's going to be meaningful to anybody, regardless of where you are on kind of that spectrum. You're going to, be, you're going to have to ask questions and be, be provoked to significant reflection that's going to help you encounter God in new ways. Uh, and then more than that, it's, it's sort of a purpose discovery experience. We want everyone at Bridgeway to have a handle on kind of who am I? Who has God created me to be? And what is my part to play in, in God's mission in the world? The, the class is going to meet for, for 10 weeks and, and about you know, 15, 20, maybe 25 minutes of each session will be some upfront teaching. But the vast majority of it is going to happen around small uh, around tables where you can talk through issues. You can talk about readings that will have, will have done. You can talk about journaling uh, assignments will have completed. And then, and then one last thing I want to tell you is that the class is going to be experiential. We're not just going to talk about prayer. We will talk about prayer, but we're going to have a prayer night. 
Uh, we're not just going to talk about the importance of serving, uh, that every group that goes through the path is going to serve together once. So we want to make it experiential as well as a great kind of communal learning environment. So we'd love to have you be a part of it starting September 13th. Again, our goal is that eventually everyone experiences it. And I'm confident that once we offer it once, those that have been through it will be the biggest advocates for it. For sure. I was talking with the elders and laying out kind of the the systematic way or the process way of moving throughout Bridgeway. And I was putting out the big things such as the weekend service experiencing of God. And I was talking about missional communities as a critical piece and going out and doing ministry together. The path is one of those. It's not a class, it's the class. And so we are trying to make sure that everyone is on the same page, that all of us are of the same mind, same heart, where we're all driving the same direction. Now, the way I look at it, if you're interested in this, not only is it beginning Tuesday night, September 13th, but you would mark out your calendars to be consistently involved through November 18th. So if you are interested in that, you can sign up and and Brian, can you tell us a little bit real quick how to sign up? Yeah, yeah, you should have received this card as you walked in. It has sign-up information on the back. Uh, I'll be in the lobby, and there's also a team of folks in the lobby at, at computers who can help you get uh, signed up and registered, and you can also do so at home just by following the info on this card. And if you have any questions, you can send me an email or stop me in the lobby. That's it. Thanks, Brian. Right, thanks, everybody. All right. Just noting Brian got three rounds of applauses. And currently, Pastor Lance has got none. All right. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like begging for attention. Praise the Lord. Well, let's transition. If you could take out your Bibles, take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, we can begin. I want to talk for a moment about faith, and I want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank on that sheet. By just reminding you, there's a lot of repeating throughout this series because what we're trying to do is dig down beyond merely our intellectual understanding of something and we're trying to get down to transformation. We're trying to have it drip from our head to our heart and then our heart down into our soul. We're trying to look for emotional shift so that we begin to believe the things that we say and live them out. So you're going to hear me repeat a lot of things that is on purpose. So I want to remind you again what faith is and what faith is not. Faith is not a blind leap. Faith is not hope. Hope and faith are two different things. Hope is, man, I don't have any surety of it, but I'm sure hoping that's going to happen. Faith is confidence in either the character of someone or in the accuracy of the statement. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Faith clings to what is true. Faith clings to what is true. Now, for example, let's say that you are a young child. Let's say that you are six years old, seven years old. You're new to this whole school experience, but your mom and dad tell you, we will be there to pick you up after school. Faith means you have to hang on and trust their nature. Although it's been new to you, you know that mom and dad have been trustworthy. You know that they have always told you the truth. So you get done with your school day and they're not there. You're looking around. Other kids are getting picked up. You're checking your little digital watch. 
And you look and you realize, all right, they should be here by now. You now have circumstances that are warring against what they told you. Your fear is maybe they forgot me. Faith would be saying, no, despite the circumstances, I know my mom and dad. I know that they will follow through on what they say. If there is a difference in my circumstance, there is a reason for it, and they will have compensated for that. So I choose as a little child to believe that just around the corner will come mom and dad, or they will have had a backup plan of someone to come get me. What I do choose to believe, despite my fear, is that they would not forget me. I am of utmost interest in their heart. Faith is not a blind leap. It is a lockdown of what is accurate despite the attack of fear and circumstance. The reason why I'm bringing that up is that faith is heavily rooted in identity. If you know who God is, if you know who you are, you're able to know truth and you're able to hang on to that. If you do not have the core locked down, what do you have faith in? What are you hanging on to? What are you clinging to? You're going to get a barrage of all kinds of crazy circumstance. But unless you have a solid core and a solid identity in Jesus Christ, it's hard to hang on to anything. What I would hope is that all of us have an identity strong enough that it makes a literal difference in how we live. Let me give you an example. This is how practical it is for me. When I went through my most difficult time in this church a couple years ago, the first time I ever wanted to quit, the first time I ever wanted to step out of ministry, if my identity was rooted in wanting people to like me, I would have quit. If my identity was rooted in wanting a big successful church, I would have quit. If my identity was rooted in trying to please a certain core of people, I would have quit. Why didn't I? Because that's not where my identity is. My identity is locked into the fact of it is not my performance that makes God pleased with me. It is his glory and his grace and his kindness that rescued me. And he called me important before I was important. Therefore, it does not matter about the shift. The only thing that matters to me is obedience. Did God call me here? If God called me here and has not said otherwise, therefore I will be here and I'll do it with all my heart. Because my identity is wrapped up in the fact that I'm already accepted by God. I don't have to have other people tell me that I'm valuable. Therefore, it allowed me to make different decisions. That's how important this stuff is. It impacts your decisions every day. But let me also be clear about something. Everywhere in that process that I did cave, and I did, was because I am not fully formed in my identity. Does that make sense? So, I mean, yeah, the core was there, and that's the only reason why I was able to withstand a strong gust of wind. But there were areas where I did cave. And it's that we're all in process and we need to be okay with that process. We need to be all right with the fact that God's not done with us yet, right? That there's still more that he's working on in us. And But everywhere I did 
slide, everywhere there was give, everywhere there was slippage, is that I still had not yet locked in. I still care what people think. I still worry about having friends. I'm still concerned about making sure that our church is vibrant and alive and healthy. I still worry about the future, right? Why? Because I'm not fully formed. The more fully formed we are, the more immovable we are, the more we're able to make healthy decisions, not reactive decisions. Amen? That's where we're trying to head. Last thing that I'll say, because it ties in directly to the story we're about to engage with, is that for too long, actually all of history, people have used fear to control. Fear is a very powerful motivator. There is nowhere that fear can be used even the most strong than in religion. Religion speaks of good and bad, right and wrong, God and devil, heaven and hell, extreme things. So there's an ability to invoke fear like nowhere else. Now, if we're merely talking about the supernatural and we're talking about God and we're talking about the almighty and the heavenly host, there is room for nervousness, right? There's room for fear because we're talking about something so infinitely large, so incredibly beyond us. Yeah, it's unsettling. But when mankind uses it to maintain control or manipulate, we're soundly in the devil's territory, right? The more our identity is unformed, the more fear can take hold. But if we know who he is, if we know who we are in light of who he is, then mankind can't scare us as easy, right? Now, we have a lot of challenges here because where we're at in the story is that Paul's talking to a fearful church. Paul's talking to the Galatian church and he had planted them and they were doing great until some religious leaders came in that scared them and said, you guys aren't saved. It can't be grace alone. It can't just be Jesus. It needs to be Jesus. And you got to do these things. If you become a Jewish convert and you follow Jesus, you'll be saved. If you follow this rule and regulation and ritual and religion, you will be saved. And when they came in, anytime somebody says you're not saved, that invokes fear and fear will make you do all kinds of stuff. So they were scattered and scared and kind of changing their thoughts and their processes. So Paul comes in with a corrective, but pastoral heart. And he says, guys, stop letting them rattle you lock in. We know who we are and we know what Jesus said. So he begins to tell a story about why he's qualified to say that. He said, Jesus told me directly. And as a matter of fact, I even went on a trip. I went to go even see the big dogs of Christianity. And even on that trip, they knew everything I said was legit. That's where we pick up the story. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2? Galatians chapter 2 verse 3. It's going to be uh, approximately page 972, probably in your Bible, if you're reading out of the ESV. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. Let me just read 3 through 5, then we'll back up and start tearing this apart and go on with our morning. Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul said, so when I'm on this trip, even Titus, my Gentile partner in ministry, who was with me, he wasn't even forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. 
He didn't need to become a Jewish convert. Yet because of false brothers, people pretending to be Christian leaders, they secretly brought in, unknowingly to us, a bunch of guys and thoughts who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, living in grace, so that they might bring us back into slavery to rules and regulations of religion. Verse 5, to them, to those leaders and their viewpoints, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. We didn't give them an inch of ground so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. All right, a couple things. Right off the bat, let's talk about Titus. Titus is a Gentile. Titus is a non-Jew. Titus is a Greek. He got saved in Paul's ministry. And I don't know if you remember this, but when Christianity started, it started with all Jews. I mean, it was a Jewish thing. In my opinion, Christianity is fulfilled Judaism. It's not a matter of it contrary and all these. I, I believe that we got grafted into the family and that if a Jew receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Messiah, it is the fulfillment of all that God intended And then we joined into their family. So my respect is very high for the Jewish people. I believe them to be family. Now, he said, I got a buddy named Titus. He's not a Jew. He comes into this religion. He's just been going on about his life. He comes into a religion and most of the people are Jewish. But he doesn't change to try to become like them. He accepts Jesus for who Jesus says he is. And I want to suggest to you, that's difficult. Why? Because here's something that some of you experience in church that I never experienced. I grew up in church. From my earliest memories, I was in church. I breathe in church atmosphere. I understand church subculture. I know how to navigate it. I've become an expert in church subculture. And you all know there's a difference between Christianity and church subculture, right? All right, Christianity is pure, legit Jesus. Church subculture is how mankind handles that. And sometimes it's super whacked. (laughs) Right? All right. So I've been kind of grown up in all of these things. So I know how to walk in this world. Some of you came in later and it's all weird. Everything's weird about church. That when you engage in this, you feel like the fish out of water. You feel like the newbie. You feel like I'm the young one. Why does it feel like everyone else knows what's going on and not me? I keep getting in conversations and people keep saying stuff that doesn't even make sense to me. Everyone else in the room nods. I don't even know what you're talking about. And then everybody, they'll start quoting stuff in a super big book, right? How do you even know that? How would you memorize that? That's weird to... Okay, y'all understand what I'm saying? Okay, so it's intimidating. Titus comes into this and then he's surrounded by Jews. So they're all having their conversation talking about the Old Testament and everything. He's like, well, what's that? Where's that? You know, but he doesn't cave to the peer pressure to become like them. He sticks with the Jesus he knows. I think that's a big deal because I think all of us feel peer pressure in our church subculture to cave and take on their view, whether it's biblical or not. Understand how identity matters there. 
Because once again, if your identity is not fully formed, you're just going to chase after and do what everybody else does, even if it's not legit. We need to know our Lord backward and forward. He already knows us. We need to know him. All right, let's keep moving forward. Here's another thing that I thought was interesting is he said not even Titus needed to be circumcised or felt pressured to do so, meaning he didn't have to become a Jew convert. He didn't. If somebody said to him, I don't know if you're saved, man. He's like, well, I know I'm saved and I don't need your authorization. I don't need you to tell me that I'm legitimate. My Jesus tells me I'm legitimate. But let me talk about a side note. Now, because we have kids here and we're in a mixed group, I'm not going to go off on my comedy routine on this subject. But can I merely bring up how odd circumcision is as a sign? Normally, is not a sign supposed to be something that shows somebody something? Right? Why is circumcision a sign for the Jewish people? I think that's really weird. They're not the only group to do it, right? I mean, there was all kinds of groups that did circumcision as an identity for their culture. But is there any more hidden sign than that? If someone comes up, dude, you circumcised? You're like, you got to take my word for it, dude. We're not going there. You just, I mean, it's not like you're going to accidentally find out. How odd to have one of the most private things be the sign that you're in the group. It just seems weird to me, right? But let me step off that for a moment. That that's an identity marker for their culture. For example, if you remember the David and Goliath story, David comes into this warfare scenario and there's a giant from the Philistines. That's a different group of people. You have two different groups fighting each other. David comes in, here's what Goliath says, and do you remember his response? Who does that uncircumcised Philistine think he is? You remember that? That was an insult. He's going, who does that other guy, the non-God guy, who does that guy in another group think that he is to challenge us in our group because we all share the same mark? So it's an identity marker for their culture. But what if the identity culture is wrong when it comes to Jesus? Let me, let me tell you what I mean. What if the identity that you have for your culture does not line up with Scripture? And in order to align with Jesus, you get outed from your culture. Example, let's say you grow up in an intellectual culture. Your parents are professors, everybody's scientists, everybody wants to talk about evolution, everybody wants to talk about how this happened and what you can prove in a lab, and everybody is about academics and intellect. And you become a Christian. How's that going to work out for you? You start talking about a supernatural God, something that can't be tested, something that's invisible. You start talking about heavenly hosts and things going on in the spirit realm in a different dimension, and all of them think you're nuts. That's going to out you from the culture. It's going to clash because what the scientific community tends to believe is only that which is in this world. And yet Christianity believes something outside of this world. They will call you foolish. They will call you stupid. They will block you out and say that you have slipped. Every culture in the world, when they come to Jesus, has to change. 
Let's say, for example, you're Native American. And you are here when all of a sudden people start getting off boats and start showing up. When they get off boats, they start talking about Christianity. Now, I need you to understand that what happened when there's any type of evangelism throughout the world, you have Christianity and you have church subculture, right? The pure Christianity is legit. The church subculture you brought in may or may not be legit at all. It may or may not even be healthy. When they came in, they had to engage with them and they would say, this is Jesus. He is God. And he says, there are no other gods but me. But your whole culture works in spiritualism. Your whole culture works in there are many spirits in all things and we try to honor all of them. You have a clash. Your culture and Christianity don't sink. But if you step into Christianity, you're rejected by your culture. Every culture has to go through that. The Jewish culture still had to go through that. Everybody does. So what currently is God saying you are clashing with your culture and I need you to leave your culture behind and come my way? Is it materialism? Is it the culture of self in America? What is it? Is it cheating in business? All these types of things. What are you being called out from your culture to have a firm identity in Jesus Christ? Because we have to make that. What would it gain a man if he would gain his culture but lose his own soul? You all know what I'm talking about. All right, let's keep moving forward. It says this. And from those, verse 6, when I was on my trip, for those, from those leaders in Jerusalem that I went to go see, the big dogs, who seemed to be influential, I mean, they were apostles and elders of the Christian religion or Christian faith. What they were makes no difference to me, Paul said, because God shows no partiality. God's not impressed by mankind. Those, I say, who seemed influential... They added nothing to me in my ministry message. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, just like Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, to the Jews, for he, the Holy Spirit who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. All he said was, man, when I finally went up before these guys, they didn't say, oh, your message is wrong. They knew I was legit. They didn't add anything. They knew immediately that God had called me to one group. God had called them to the other group and both were right. That tells us a couple things. Number one, it tells us that God calls us to different things and both are equal. Once again, in our identity, even in church subculture, I need us all to remember our job is to do what God calls us to do, not to try to duplicate somebody else's ministry. God knows how to spread it out, and he wants to get a lot of things done, so we can't spend all of our time obsessing and trying to do somebody else's ministry. You do your ministry. You don't need somebody else's gift. You use your gift. You don't need somebody else's influence. You use your influence. The other thing that I think is interesting is that Paul went to these guys, and even though he keeps saying phrases like, hey, whoever they are, it doesn't matter to me. He also showed up and gave them the respect that they deserve. 
He said they were elders and leaders of the church. And if I'm going to work within this, I'm going to give them the proper respect. I myself, my heart is not impressed by them, but that's not the point. The point is the rest of the church is looking to them and I need to work within those constructs. Here's why I think that's important. Here's what culture I want at Bridgeway. I want a culture of respect here. I want all of us to respect our leaders. I want us not to be so cavalier and so, well, you know what? Nobody impresses me. I don't care about anybody else. I get that. That's my nature. My nature inside is not to be impressed by anybody. The problem is, is are you doing that for the wrong reasons? Are you just simply trying to degrade everybody else in your mind so you feel better about yourself? That's unhealthy. Or are you able to balance out these two truths? Respect, but not worship. You all understand what I'm saying? Here's what we need. We need to respect our leaders and give them the credit and not demean what God is doing through them, but be wise enough to know that it's God through them that is impressive, not them. Because the minute we put someone on a pedestal, we shift from filtering them as a human with an extraordinary God and start worshiping them as the God. I want our culture to not be concerned about celebrity, but to be very clear on respect. I think that's a healthier way to live. Because then the glory always goes to the one who deserves the glory and doesn't get stuck on the person that he's going through. Does that make sense? All right. Then he said this, verse 9, And when James, the brother of Jesus, one of the main big dogs in the Jerusalem church, and when Cephas or Cephas or Peter, and when John, Jesus' best friend, son of thunder, one of the apostles, and when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars leading the church, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, meaning the power, the anointing, the blessing, the authority, the evidence from God, they gave the right hand of fellowship, authorizing our partnership to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, they go to the circumcised, the Jews. Only they had one request that they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. He said, they didn't give me anything in terms of my ministry. They just merely reminded me that their heart is for the poor. And I said, yeah, mine too. A couple things about that. Number one, Let's talk about the poor. The poor is very close to Jesus' heart. God's heart is very close to that. But I need to tell you what type of poor. Because this is where things start getting a little cloudy for us. Because we look around and we're going, I don't quite understand. In the culture at the time, there was a very extreme class division. There was for some an inability to make money. They were shut out for whatever reason. So, for example, it could have been from a mental deficiency. It could have been from a physical deficiency. It could have been from a social deficiency. You were not from the right things. You couldn't get a job. They wouldn't allow you to work, whatever it was. But they were forced to be poor. So they did not have what they needed. That is who Jesus is close to. Just the fact that somebody does not have money does not mean that they're more spiritual, right? 
I mean, and, and what he's not talking about is, oh yeah, let me reward bad choices and all these different, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that if someone is kept down for whatever reason, our job is to come in and lift them up. That's what we do. He said, yeah, Jesus was always close to that. The big dogs in Jerusalem were close to that. And so was I. And Paul demonstrated that. He was always with them. But then notice the other thing that he said. He said, when they saw the power and anointing that was going through my ministry, do you all know the power that we're talking about? I mean, does everybody remember kind of what, what a big deal Paul was? Okay, let, let, me, let me remind you. Paul was operating in gifting and anointing that was off the charts. The Holy Spirit was wrecking people through that guy. Everywhere he would walk, stuff happened. So, for example, not only was he doing what all the other apostles were doing, which was, I mean, he was casting out demons and he was healing people and miracles were being wrought right in front of him. I mean, all that stuff was emanating out. God was coursing through that guy like crazy. But he even had a higher anointing to where, and I don't know if you remember this, one small line blows my mind in Scripture. It says, and they even took the handkerchiefs from his from his workshop that used to be on him, and they would lay those on people and they would get healed. Okay, that's radical. If your dirty laundry heals people, you're hardcore. Right? You're not even there. Right? And no, he was not selling them for nine ninety five on the TV and right? Okay, y'all know what I'm talking about. This is legit stuff, right? This is not bogus. Peter operated in a similar extreme anointing when it says his shadow would cross over people and demons would be cast out. He didn't even touch him. It was his shadow. Why was God moving through him like that? That's his own business. Here's what I'm telling you. He said, when they saw all of that power emanating from Paul and his ministry that he was doing, they said, you're legit. But notice how it was qualified. And they saw the grace given to me. Paul goes, let me explain something. I don't deserve any of this. I'm kind of a jerk, right? Like I was very anti-Christian. I killed people. I'm not a nice guy. Okay, so none of this, God was going, man, I'd love to give this to this guy because he's such a good guy. I wasn't a good guy. I was a bad guy. So he didn't got give that to me because, wow, I earned it. There was no performance involved. Anything that comes through me in my ministry, he said, is all grace all the time. I don't get to claim any of it. It's all the Holy Spirit, not me. That's extraordinary. And also notice this supernatural ministry, in my opinion, is very important and we'll continue to talk about it as a church, but supernatural ministry does not negate practical ministry. These guys were rocking the supernatural and they're concerned about the poor. You understand what I mean? Christianity is making sure to balance those two because some people need to be healed. Some people just need some water. All right, let's keep moving forward. Verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? That's a clash of the titans, man. That's Paul versus Peter. Really? That's like a cage match. That's awesome. 
UFC 230, right? You're just going to have these guys smash, all right? You need to know Antioch. Antioch is Paul's hood. Antioch is where Paul hangs out. Antioch is the third most influential city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, which was the big place, because you can't be the Roman Empire without Rome being a big deal, right? (laughs) Okay, Rome's number one. Number two was Alexandria in Egypt. That was part of the Roman Empire. That was the second most influential city. The third was Antioch. Antioch was in a lot of trade routes, and it was mostly, uh, it was right on the edge of what we now know as Syria and Turkey, and it was a seaport. It was very, it was on a river, but it was still came in through the ocean. So it was very, very influential. It eventually became the new hub of all of Christianity. The center of Christianity moved from Jerusalem, where it started, over to Antioch, and it was the explosion place. It was the missionary hub and launching pad. Everything happened through Antioch. That was primarily due to how God moved through Paul and Barnabas. He said, when Peter came to my town, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. He came to hang out with us, but he was in my sphere of influence. Watch what happened. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles, accepting them as equals. We were all cool. But when those religious guys showed up, he drew back and separated himself, causing a division, fearing the circumcision party. What does that mean? Peter caved. Before, and we all know Peter is Mr. Um, Impulsive, right? So at first, Peter comes in. Paul, what's up? Barnabas, how you doing, man? What are we doing? Oh, love feast. Woo! Yeah. And he's like, yeah, high five and all the Gentiles and they're sitting down in their culture. You do not just eat with anybody. You know exactly who's at your table. And when you eat with them, you are affirming they are equals with you. It's an honoring thing. So he sat with all the Gentiles. Man, what are we doing? What kind of Gentile stuff are we doing today? Yeah, right. And he's having all this fun. And the minute religious guys show up that are Jews, that are a little bit more rigid he starts caving to the peer pressure and starts backing up and starts separating from the team because he would cave to pressures. Paul was livid. And the rest of the Jews in the Galatian church, verse 13, acted hypocritically along with him. They lived a lie. So even Barnabas, a huge deal leader, was led apart, led astray by their hypocrisy. Uh Uh-oh. Now we have a virus. Peter comes over. Everything's cool. Then religious guys show up. He starts separating out. He starts influencing the church. It even affects Barnabas. And if it affects Barnabas, it affects everybody. When leaders get it wrong, lots of people are affected. Paul said, I'm not moving from this. I'm not doing that. And I'm not going to let it happen on my watch. One other side note. What happens when the church culture backs up the sin of society? Give you an example. I've been very clear in this series how much in that day and age, Jews and Gentiles hated each other, right? That's called racism. The Jews hated non-Jews. That's a race issue. The non-Jews hated the Jews. Culture 
had them completely separated and segregated. What was so radical about Christianity early on was that it was bringing everyone together. And they were saying, no, we're all the same in Jesus Christ. Let's all hang out together. We're family. But now there was a religious church subculture thing that says we should separate again. What happens when the church starts approving of the sin of society? We got something seriously wrong. The church is supposed to be contrary to the sin of society. But we keep backing it up. Hmm. If you begin to see the church encouraging something that you know is messed up with society, somewhere we've probably gone off the path. Here's what he said. Even Barnabas caved. But when I saw, verse 14, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw they were wrong, when I saw that their words and their actions weren't fitting, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter before them all, publicly rebuking him, if you, Peter, though you are a Jew by birth, live free like a non-Jew, like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force by your behavior the non-Jews to live like Jews? Oh, wow. Just slammed him in front of everybody. So let me ask you a question. When do you publicly reprimand somebody and when do you do it in private? We've done both of this church, right? We've talked about stuff that was public and we talked about stuff that was private. There's some stuff that you never even found out about. Why? Because it wasn't for you. How do you know the difference? Usually the rule of thumb is this. If the sin was carried out in private, it's handled in private. When the sin is handled publicly, or excuse me, happens and is known publicly, you need to show the congregation that it was dealt with appropriately. If the sin is public, the rebuke is public. If the sin is private, the rebuke is private. It's just kind of how it works. Why? Because we're a family. When the parents have to correct somebody, if the kid does something and does it out in front of all the other kids... We need all the kids to learn that's not acceptable because otherwise it'll catch on. But if the child is doing something, they're wrestling with it on their own. The child takes them into a back room and says, that's not okay. That's different. So what does this all have to do with us? People were caving. They're caving for acceptance. All of us want acceptance. Right? You could sit there and play a game and go, I wish I was finally cool enough or I don't need to be accepted by anybody. That's not going to happen. You're always going to want acceptance. It's how you were built. But I'll tell you this. Here's my desire. That all of us are so filled up with the acceptance of God that we don't have to have the acceptance of people. But we can choose who is healthy to receive feedback from. Does that make sense? is that I, I, I really desire us to feel so filled up that we're not craving so much. Because if you're not craving overly, you can have a balanced mind and use a filter. But when you're so empty, you blow right past your filter and you just want acceptance from anybody that will give it to you. Especially if they're a big deal. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? 
We're going to close and I'm going to pray for the prayer team and then I'm going to pray for you. Remember, the ministry continues on that if God has stirred up something in your heart, he's probably telling you to go forward and pray about it. That way, God kind of taps them on the shoulder and creates kind of a divine appointment for you to be ministered to. That's why the prayer team is here. So let me just pray for them and pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you anoint this team to be our ambassadors of the kingdom? Would you anoint them in such a way, Holy Spirit, that they would carry on what you want to get done? Lord, if someone needs to be loved on or cared for, if they need to be given a healing touch, if they need to leave some baggage at the altar, if they need to be able to be restored, if there needs to be some confession and freedom, if there needs to be just a soft word of affirmation, if there needs to be encouragement or if there just needs to be prayer for a wound, I pray, Lord, that you would anoint this altar and these people for such a time as this. And God, for all of us, would you allow our identities to be softened up so that this stuff takes root, so that we know who we are and we are immovable to the enemy, that we know who we are and we are immovable to the world, that, Lord, that we can look out and figure out what is healthy and right, but we are not so desperate that we would cave. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts so that we would receive from you and then we would believe it. And by faith, we would cling to it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week.